0: Salt actually is used by our body to fight viruses and where sugar dampens the immune response. So if you consume hundred grams of refined carbohydrates or sugar, it suppresses the phagocytic activity of the immune system for about five hours. So if you constantly do that every five hours, you're consuming a a high refined carbohydrate meal then you are just at a lower uh, immune system function throughout the entire day. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster the show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle.
1: Hi, friends. I am thrilled to bring you today's episode with Dr. James D. Nicolantonio. He is a cardiovascular research scientist and doctor of pharmacy at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also the author of The Salt Fix, Superfuel, the immunity fix which we're diving into today and he has a new book um, about to launch called the mineral fix dr james is a well-respected and internationally known scientist and expert on health and nutrition and he's contributed extensively to health policy and has even tested in front of the canadian senate regarding the harms of added sugars um, he, Dr. James um, serves as the associate editor of nutrition and British medical journals, Open Heart, um, a journal published in partnership with the British Card- Cardiovascular Society. He's the author um, or co-author of approximately 200 publications in the medical literature. Uh, he's also on the editorial advisory boards of several medical journals, and he shared his experience on the Dr. Oz Show, the Doctors, and international news media outlets. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have him here today because, we talk about our immune system. And um, nothing could be really more relevant right now in light of the pandemic. And we talk about the difference between the adaptive and the innate immune system. We talk about why children are less affected by COVID and how you can really strengthen your immune system using natural health strategies and nutrition. Um, We also talk about how important salt is um, and how the body actually uses salt to fight viruses um, and how sugar depresses the immune system as well. So there is a wealth of knowledge in this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you want to go and download the show notes and the transcript for the episode, then head over to my website, www.angelafosterperformance.com forward slash podcast. And you can find everything that we talk about over there on the website. But let me now introduce you to Dr. James. So I'm really thrilled to be joined today by... Dr. James D. Nicol Antonio, who is a cardiovascular research scientist and doctor of pharmacy. He's also the author of a book um, that he released last year called The Immunity Fix. It's an incredible book. For those of you that don't have it, I think every single bookshelf should have it on their shelves. It's an amazing read, not just for things like viral immunity, um, which is very topical at the moment, but also against things like heart disease, cancer, metabolic syndrome. Um, So it's so awesome to have you here, James. First of all, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me on Angela, happy to be here.
1: Um, So let's just start off I guess with giving people a kind of quick really quick overview of what the immune system is, the difference between innate and adaptive immunity and just kind of how it how it functions um, just so they understand immunity first of all.
0: Sure, yeah so um, like you said you know in traditional medicine we break down the immune system into the innate and the adaptive and the innate is something that your your body quickly mounts a response to an infection um, using things like um, macrophages, white blood cells, natural killer cells. And they attack the virus in a more pro-inflammatory way. And um, it's effective, but it can create a lot of inflammation. And then you have your adaptive immune system, which is typically your T cells and your B cells, um, where they the word adaptive, they adapt, and after a couple of days, they really figure out how to sort of destroy the virus in a targeted way using things like antibodies. And that adaptive immune system continuously carries over. So, for example, if you get a common cold coronavirus, right, your T cells and B cells still have this long lasting memory to the sequence, which is very similar to other coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2. The sequence is very similar. So you have this crossover sort of immune memory where the T cells and B cells will recognize sequences on SARS-CoV-2. Now, we don't know it definitively how much sort of, um, you know immunity you have against it, but the better adaptive immune response and memory um, to viruses, the better you can um, handle them when you meet similar viruses in the future. And so developing that type of robust um, adaptive immune response is so important. And in the book, we discuss things that sort of dampen that response, um, like poor diet, exercise, things like that. And people who have poor COVID outcomes, they particularly have this decreased adaptive immune system, and they have your same active innate immune system response. So it ends up being just a pro-inflammatory cytokine storm response, and it's not as effective at clearing the virus.
1: Oh, okay. So the body's kind of overreacting to what it sees, but it doesn't have the adaptive response to support it and kind of kick it.
0: Correct. So there's a reduction in T cells and B cells in people who do not do well with with, uh, coronavirus. And the essentially their ability to kill as well those cells ability to kill is dampened as well and there's also a reduction in what's called your type 1 interferons it's essentially your body's natural way evolving through viruses over millions of years to interfere with viruses and viruses have their own way of interfering with your own type 1 interferon response so they interfere with your interference of them and so we talk in the book Uh, And and I've published actually a couple of papers prior to publishing this book on what supplements can potentially boost that type one interferon response.
1: Yeah, which I want to go into actually in just a second. When you when you make so you make the point there that obviously the adaptive immune system is involved. So if it's seen similar things, um, it may have a better response. But obviously what we see, um, and I just want to kind of fully understand this and help listeners understand is it seems to be that children are not particularly affected by this virus, although they obviously haven't come into contact with as many. Is that because their innate immune system is less likely to overreact because they don't have the kind of same levels of inflammation and aging within the body?
0: So children do, they end up clearing the virus quicker because they have a a better T cell and B cell response along with their good innate immune response. So they have the perfect balance Whereas, you know, as we age, you start seeing that dip in your T cells and P cells and their ability to, um, you know, kill viruses in a, in a silent, less pro-inflammatory way. And so children, yeah, they do not seem to be particularly affected by SARS-CoV-2.
1: Sure, which is good news. Mm -hmm. So looking then um, at in terms of how people can really strengthen their immune systems, because this is important, not just in terms of this virus, but anything else that's coming along, and also just in terms of long-term immunity against things like cancer, for example. What are the fundamentals? Let's let's start with, because there's so much here, isn't there? Should we start with in terms of what we actually physically put in our mouth, nutrition-wise, because there's things that people put in that are going to damage that um, response and actually inhibit their immune system, and then there are things that are going to support it. And I know, for example, with your last book, for example, The Salt Fix, like actually sugar feels like the enemy here, um, even though I still to this day get people worrying about salt and blood pressure. So perhaps we can demystify that a little bit at the same time.
0: Sure. Yeah. So you make a good point. Um, Sugar is definitely the bad white crystal. Salt is not. Salt is an essential mineral. Salt actually is used by our body to fight viruses and where sugar dampens the immune response. So if you consume hundred grams of refined carbohydrates or sugar, it suppresses the phagocytic activity of the immune system for about five hours. So if you constantly do that every five hours, you're consuming a, a high refined carbohydrate meal. And you are just at a lower uh, immune system function throughout the entire day. And we know that people with metabolic syndrome, which is essentially having three or or five of the more of the following high blood pressure, waist circumference, triglycerides, um, low HDL, um, those people they have a three and a half fold higher risk of dying from COVID-19 and have worse outcomes. And you can fix those markers of poor metabolic health very quickly by simply dropping refined carbohydrate and sugar intake. So it's sort of making the leap that people with poor metabolic health do worse and people who drop refined carbohydrates and sugars improve their metabolic health. So thus that will improve your immune health. That is making a little bit of a jump but it makes complete sense that if you're in poor metabolic health, your immune cells themselves are not going to be working as well.
1: So talking about immunity there, I just want to briefly interrupt today's show to tell you about some incredible immune-boosting supplements over at Get Keon. Um, they have an immunity bundle which includes their Keon Immune, which has high levels of natural vitamin C coupled with some very bioavailable zinc. Um, they also have Keon Colostrum, which is nature's original gut-building food, and um, colostrum is amani- amazing for strengthening the lining of your gut and promoting a better immune response it also helps to improve athletic recovery between workouts and in that bundle they also have Keon Oregano Oil which is a trusted herbal solution that's been used for centuries in the Mediterranean and their wild harvest Turkish Oregano Oil has over 80% carvacrol levels which makes it potent but also a gentle solution to promote a balanced microbiome now you can get a cool 15% off any of Keon's products Including their immunity bundle by heading over to bit.ly forward slash get my key on. And key on is spelt K-I-O-N. And all you need to do is enter coupon code Angela at checkout to get your 15% off. So just head over to bit.ly forward forward slash get my key on and that's K-I-O-N and the other thing that um, Dr. James and I talk about in this interview is um, how collagen is one of the most abundant abundant proteins in our body and how important it really is for our health and our immune function and um, one of my favorite forms of collagen is actually by hunter and gather Um, they have some very pure pure grass fed collagen i mix it into my coffee in the morning um, mixes super well makes it actually taste slightly nice and creamy and takes the edge off the bitterness you can also throw it into a smoothie um, multiple ways to take it um, but it's amazing for again enhancing your um the health of your gut and strengthening your immune system and also really helping with your connective tissue your skin health and helping you look and feel younger so to get a discount on hunter and gathers um, collagen all you need to do is go to bit.ly forward slash hunter and gather and enter code angela foster to get 10% off your order so that's bit.ly forward slash hunter and gather and enter code angela at checkout to get 10% off your order so those are some of my top immune boosting supplements now let's go back to my interview with dr james And you mentioned there actually about HDL, um, because what I see is when I look at people's genetic tests, is commonly they will have a SNP that basically, or a series of SNPs that make them more vulnerable to lower levels of HDL and higher levels of LDL. Um, what, what can they do here? What, what's something that active steps that people can take to enhance their HDL levels?
0: I think when you're looking at, at, a, at a ratio, the best is really triglycerides to HDL because triglycerides are primarily determined by insulin sensitivity or resistance. So I don't like to necessarily look at LDL on its own. Um, if you look at the triglycerides, they really wanna be below 100 is really optimal. If, if you're at 100 or higher, that's potentially you know indicating insulin resistance. And definitely if you're over 150. With HDL, it's a little tricky if you have low triglycerides and your HDL is low, your insulin sensitivity may be okay. But I, I get more worried if someone's triglycerides are high and they have a low HDL, then that's particularly worrisome.
1: Yeah. Okay. And just so people understand this, this is because when you're eating excess sugar, it's got to be converted into something, right? So it's going to be converted either to triglycerides in the blood or adipose tissue in form like body fat, basically in the body. Um,
0: yeah, exactly. So it, an excess consumption of sugar will lead to insulin resistance, which will then increase VLDL, which increases your triglyceride levels in the in the blood. So uh, elevated triglyceride and HDL is a good ratio to look at. Um, but but ideally, if you can if you can get either a fasting insulin or better yet an insulin assay after an oral glucose load, that will that will indicate how insulin sensitive uh, someone is. Yeah. Sure.
1: Okay. Um, And then the other thing as well that you dive into in the book in terms of not consuming, um, that's not always obvious to people, I guess, is um, pro-inflammatory oils and making sure that you get your omega-3, 6 ratio right and imbalance. Um, Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that?
0: Sure. So a lot of people know that um, omega-3s are heart healthy and there's two different types, one from plants, which is called alpha-linolenic acid or ALA which our body does an an okay job, not a great job at then converting to longer chain omega threes like EPA and DHA, which people know you get thing from uh, things like fish oil or algae oils, things like that. And the really anti-inflammatory omega threes are those EPA and DHA. Um, And then there's something called DPA, which you can get from grass fed, um, you know, animal fat and DPA about 30% of DPA gets converted to DHA. So, grass-fed meats and grass-fed animal fats, typically people don't think they're a good source of DHA. But when you take into account the DPA, which is much higher, and that gets converted to DHA in the body, it's actually a fairly decent source of long chain omega-3s. And, and so- is tho- that
1: DPA better conversion than the plant-based to omega-3s, that uh, to DHA? So like, yeah. is that, are we better at doing that basically?
0: Right, so ALA, the average conversion to DHA is going to be something like um, like 0.5%. There's a very, very low conversion. Whereas DPA, you're getting that about 30% conversion yeah, to DPA. Okay. And yeah. really that's how the body handles inflammation is um, the molecules that are converted off of DHA and EPA are called resolvins and protectins. And that is how our body naturally utilizes those fats and the molecules that come off of those the metabolites to sort of get rid of inflammation. So it's important to have good amounts of omega-3 in your tissue. So when there's inflammation, your body can then convert those long chain omega-3s to the resolvents and protectants, which help resolve inflammation. And they actually get taken up into every single immune cell that's ever been tested. And the same thing with omega-6. So you have your plant omega-6s, which is um, linoleic acid. And then you have your refined seed oils, which is really harmful because omega-6 isn't necessarily harmful when it's coming from real whole foods. It's really when you extract it from these seeds in the process of high heat and hexane will oxidize that oil. Then it's kept in a plastic clear bottle for months on a shelf, oxidizing further Then you consume it and your stomach acid further oxidizes it into these really pro-inflammatory molecules. And the immune cells will take up that inflammatory omega-6 and that will cause the immune cells to secrete more pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it's really important to keep your omega-3 and omega-6 ratio balanced. You know, typically you don't want a omega-6 to 3 ratio higher than 4 to 1 and you want to make sure that you're getting optimal intakes of EPA and DHA and that you're really minimizing or completely eliminating the consumption of omega-6 seed oils like corn oil, safflower, sunflower, um, soybean and canola oil.
1: Yeah, and just so people understand, actually, I mean, some of the articles I've read or the research suggests that on like the standard American diet, for example, the omega um, 6 to 3 ratio can be like as high as sort of 15 to 1 or 30 to 1, right? It can actually go really, really high. Um,
0: yeah, there's data um, in, in India that it might be actually as high as 50 to 1. And then in the United yeah. States, I mean... You're talking averages, right? That it's around 20 to 30 to one in the United States, but there's a lot of people who are consuming an omega six to three ratio well above 20 to 30 to one.
1: And what about, what are your thoughts on rapeseed oil? Because obviously that's a highly processed oil, but what we see coming on more and more, certainly in Europe to the market is cold pressed organic rapeseed oil. It's still, it's not going to be an easy process, is it, to get oil from a seed that small? Um, What are your thoughts on cold pressed?
0: So, you definitely don't want to cook with an omega-6 seed oil. Mm. That's, that's number one. So if you're going to use a cold pressed, um, you definitely don't want to cook with that. So I will consume certain cold pressed seed oils like black cumin seed oil, but that is like an Ayurvedic um, type of you know herbal medicine almost. I mean, there's so many clinical studies using black cumin seeds. Even There's even a... Um, pre-registered NIH study in 340 COVID patients where they gave them black ground partially ground black human seeds at about six grams per day, plus raw honey, and they significantly reduced mortality, um, increased viral clearance, and the hospital stay was cut by about five days in 340 severe oh. COVID patients. So um, that is still a preprint. and has not been formally peer-reviewed, but it was registered with the NIH, and the results look uh, very intriguing. And there's many, many randomized studies testing black, um, black seed oil or ground black cumin seeds for lowering blood pressure, oxidative stress. So there are exceptions to the omega-6 oil rule. That is one of them. The second one would be evening primrose oil is also an exception, mm-hmm. but you're not cooking with those oils. So that's mm-hmm. really the key
1: yeah and that's also great isn't it for hormonal health just picking up there when you talk about raw honey because obviously raw honey has been used for a very long time and is helpful as well for things like respiratory infections um specifically it needs to be raw right because then it's metabolized by the liver and it doesn't affect insulin in the same way is that right can you kind of explain that because and also what the quantity is right because it's still moderate amounts that we're talking about here
0: Right. So when you pasteurize honey, you're sort of inactivating some of the enzymes, the antioxidant enzymes that are in there. So honey is like this whole food substance that it's basically right, the nectar that bees take and it mixes with their microbiome and creates honey. And it is, it is technically a whole food matrix of vitamins, minerals, antioxidant enzymes, tannins, phenolic acids. I mean, there's probably 300 compounds in honey. And when you pasteurize and heat it, you're sort of deactivating some of those benefits. So if you can get it raw, it's less processed. And just like any, the more you process the food, the health benefits go like this. So um, taking raw honey is you're getting this from nature, this raw component. And um, there are definitely a lot of studies showing that consuming raw honey, typically at a dose of up to four ounces per day, but usually, you know, one to two seems to probably be enough, one to two ounces per day. So that is, that's like two tablespoons twice a day of raw honey Um, and and there's definitely a lot of studies on improving asthma, uh, reducing common cold. And now we have this preprint study combined with black human seeds that it may help with COVID.
1: And is this any kind of specific type of honey? Like does it need to be Manuka honey or is this just raw honey?
0: So I actually emailed the authors to understand like what type of honey this was and they said it was just um, a typical raw local honey. And so the study was published, well, the preprint was published in, I believe, Pakistan. So it's just a, your typical local Pakistan honey in nature. Um, and so you can't extrapolate, right, local honeys as being the same from where you are to one location, um, because there are definitely different, um, like Tuolang honey from, from deep in the rainforest has been shown to have higher, like things, um, higher antioxidant enzymes to it. So there's definitely definitely not all raw honeys are the same per se, but I think that any type of raw honey is gonna probably have some benefit, especially over refined sugar.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's talk about then actually um, on that thread, in terms of things that can actually really actively enhance our immune system? Um, just just looking predominantly at diet, like the, the, one of the key ones obviously is vitamin D that's being talked about a lot. We can't really get much of it from our diet. It tends to be more from the sunshine. But what are the kind of things that if people are thinking, right, I want to I meet these in my food and also with supplements in terms of a stack um, that will help to enhance their immune health?
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're correct that Probably the best way to get vitamin D is through sunlight, um, but obviously we can't do that in the in the winter months if we're living up north. So I typically get um, a good amount of my vitamin D through cod liver oil because it also provides vitamin A. And there's this huge debate. There's a, there's a large debate that um, you know should you constantly dose with high doses of vitamin D. It does seem to be potentially beneficial in in certain COVID patients. There are some small randomized studies showing this. And so for certain situations, potentially yes. But is it better to use real whole foods in sunlight to get vitamin D versus just, you know, constantly dosing with two to 4,000 IU's? use? It's really hard to say because a lot of the studies show benefits when people supplement with two to 4,000 international units of vitamin D, probably because people are so deficient. They don't get sunlight. They don't consume vitamin D foods like, like wild salmon or or sardines or cod liver oil. So they're so depleted that of course, these supplemental studies are probably going to show benefit, but in the long, long run, you know, what's the best way to do that? And so I always try to go back to what are the natural sources of vitamin D? So that'd be things like, you know, wild salmon, um, uh, pastured eggs has vitamin D in it and cod liver oil. And then you're also getting the vitamin a too, and it's in a little bit more of a bioavailable form when you're getting it from like an oil. Um, So vitamin D is important because 1 billion people are vitamin D deficient globally. Half the global population is vitamin D insufficient. And if you have severe vitamin D deficiency, which is a level of essentially less than 10 to 12, uh, you're at a 14.7 fold higher risk of dying from COVID-19. So it's like the biggest risk factor that I've ever seen. And, you know, we know that people who are over the age of 60 have about a ninefold higher increased risk of dying, but you can't fix your age, but you can certainly fix your vitamin D levels. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is where we get into the, well, what can people do then to potentially improve their immune health and their immune system? And definitely vitamin D is, is one of those uh, things that can.
1: On that, you know, like, because I was looking at my own vitamin D levels in the summer, and obviously here in the UK, we are in the Northern Hemisphere, so you're getting less in winter. I think I saw a study that basically suggested as long as people spent a certain amount of time outside between March and the end of October, and they bared enough skin, they would have enough to not. Dip below what doctors would consider. Okay, now doctors uh, are going to consider a, a healthy amount much lower, right? So we would look at ideally between 50 and 80. I'm just thinking for people who spend a lot of time outside and they go on holidays abroad and they top up nicely in the summer, you know, I think mine was something like 115 or 120 in the summer. How much margin do you see in somebody then to slide down? So like we're recording this at the end of February, presumably with a supplementation or those two protocols, someone's vitamin D is now sliding down. Is, is that if you kind of shoot over and you really look after your health for six, seven, eight months of the year, when you can be outside, is that going to be enough to sort of carry you between say November and February?
0: It's really hard to say um, because we try to simplify things and, and, medicine. So for example, uh, we try to say, well, what's the optimal range of vitamin D? A lot of people will say 40 to 60 nanograms per ml. It's higher for millim. If you're using millimoles, it's higher. I think you guys, you might use that in the UK when I'm, when I'm saying, well, that might be like, I don't know, 30 in your units. Um, so in, 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 in typical units of, uh, nanograms, uh, per ml, uh, deficiency is below 20, sufficiency is uh, usually 30 or higher. And then we like to say optimal is somewhere, a lot of people say 40 to 80 is optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really don't know because when I was getting a lot of sunlight in the summer, I wasn't supplementing with vitamin D though. My level was 31, which is just sufficient, not in the quote unquote optimal range but I might be converting that vitamin D very well to the active form. Okay. Cause that requires okay. magnesium and multiple enzymatic processes. So if someone has a level of 50 is quote unquote in the optimal range, but I'm converting my 31 better to the, to the active hormone better then who's really actually has the optimal vitamin D level. Right. We don't, we, we don't know. We like to look at aggregates and say, well, if you're at this level, that seems to be the best, but We really don't know. And I'll tell you that if I was getting really good amounts of sunlight and my D level was 31, quote unquote, just just sufficient and not optimal. I don't really know if you if I need to push myself higher because I'm not measuring the active hormone. But this brings up the point that a lot of people may have a low magnesium and they're not converting to the active hormone and it's the active hormone called calcitriol. It actually binds to the receptors on your immune cells or vitamin D receptors that require the active hormone to bind. So if you have a decent vitamin D level, but you have a poor conversion, then that's not good. And that could be due to low magnesium intake. So you have to take a look at magnesium status plus vitamin D. And then when you start taking high doses of vitamin D, you start increasing and activating 2000 genes. One of those genes is increasing the production of vitamin K dependent proteins. So now you're taxing your vitamin K status. So really, if you're taking D as a supplement, you want it to be taking vitamin K, make sure magnesium status is good as well, and vitamin D. And
1: is there a specific form of magnesium that we're talking about here in terms of that's used? Because I know there's a fair few forms of magnesium.
0: Uh, get it through the diet if you can, or yeah. get it through natural mineral waters. So that's what I typically like to do. Um, okay. Slowly, you know, we. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to like to shotgun things to make things simple on ourselves to just sort of throw 500 milligrams of magnesium all at once but that's not how we would have gotten it um, through evolutionary times that's not how our gastrointestinal system is designed to work and so there's been studies looking at excuse me even comparing um magnesium waters and and how much you consume how quickly and how better you absorb magnesium if you slowly consume like magnesium waters throughout the day versus just taking two large doses. So for example, if you consume seven ounces of a high mineral water seven times a day compared to 20 ounces twice a day, you, you retain and absorb 40% more magnesium. And so this is the key to what I'm trying to say is like, try to get it through net more natural ways first, before you try this shotgun approach of a supplement.
1: Of a supplement, and what water do you recommend then? In that respect, um, are you remineralized, remineralizing water? Sorry, that you've filtered already, or are you using a specific this round is of water?
0: The, um, kind I drink. It's called Gerald Steiner water.
1: Okay, um,
0: so it has calcium and magnesium naturally in it. Um, another another good water is called Magnesia water. If people don't like sparkling or carbonated. And, and there's another water um, called crazy water, which is another just kind of natural mineral water. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a good way. Most, so many people are deficient in calcium and magnesium. Now, if you're eating a whole food diet, because calcium is fortified in everything now, if you're eating processed foods, but when you, when you start eating whole foods, it's very difficult to get bioavailable calcium, um, especially at optimal levels. So, how did we used to get it? Well, our waters were never softened and natural waters typically tend to be fairly high in calcium and magnesium. Um, So I think those two minerals I like to get through slowly consuming natural mineral waters throughout the day.
1: Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, So in terms of other nutrients, obviously there's lots of things that affect, and we know that there's some that become particularly depleted in systems as we start to aging, because obviously aging is one of the difficulties in this process. Um, can you talk a little bit about NAD? Because it is a little bit kind of controversial, I guess, insofar as if you're trying to take it in supplementary form, how much is absorbed, which forms, which kind of precursors convert into it. Um, I know like when we look at um, Dr. Sinclair's work, for example, like he takes NMM, but that's actually in quite high amounts, isn't it? So for somebody who wants to support NAD, what would you recommend?
0: Right. I mean, this is, it's an interesting topic and it, and it it comes back to the same thing where people are just trying to find a quick solution, right? So taking things like NMN or NR, nicotinamide riboside, it's like you have a hole in your boat and you're, you're taking a bucket and you're trying to throw the water overboard to keep your boat from sinking. It's, it's not the best approach. Really low um, NAD levels is suggesting a high inflammatory state in the body. Um, So really it's sort of like, how do you resolve the inflammation to naturally boost your NAD levels versus trying to take supplements? Is it possible that there's some acute benefits to boosting NAD levels Um, potentially, but I don't think there's a a whole lot of good clinical evidence to really suggest that. So again, the approach comes to what natural whole ways can I reduce the inflammation that's causing the, the low NAD levels in the first place? Rather than just trying to acutely boost it and the inflammation is going to shoot it right back down. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, that's interesting. And um, in terms of then, we've talked about seed oils, for example, they're very mostly pro inflammatory, particularly when they're heated. Um, so is sugar, very pro inflammatory in the body. What other kind of things? We've talked about grass fed meat, obviously, is much better than grain fed. Um, are there other things and kind of complementary? You talk about quite a few anti-aging compounds and um, antioxidants, things like glutathione, facetin, things like that, what would be the kind of foods that you would recommend people are most looking for to do this naturally and organically?
0: Okay. Yeah. So I think I'll talk about one topic that I haven't talked about a lot because a lot of people don't believe in it and, and it's called metabolic acidosis. Now, um, most people and most doctors necessarily don't believe that a lot of people have this because the pH of the blood will stay the same for a long, long time. Um, But if you actually took that concept, then no one would be deficient in magnesium because Mm -hmm. magnesium levels typically stay completely fine, even though the tissues are severely depleted. You can't just look at a blood level. So we typically just look at blood pH and we say people don't have metabolic acidosis. But if you look at the interstitial fluid, if you look at within the cell, most people in America or in, in Western world have uh, what's called latent chronic metabolic acidosis or low-grade metabolic acidosis because they're constantly consuming foods that are more that lead to a higher endogenous production of acid. And you cannot just breathe all of that acid out. You, you have your kidneys have to eliminate it. And at a certain point, um, typically about 70 equivalents of, of acid, you start retaining this acid and it's very pro-inflammatory because it's the, it's the acid in the cell and around those cells um, that are causing more inflammation. So for natural foods, a lot of people aren't eating enough um, fruits and vegetables or um, natural bicarbonate mineral waters or potassium citrate to offset the high dietary acid. So I think this is a, this hit this hidden sort of, um, it, it, you know, this hidden chronic issue that very little people know about, except the experts in the field. There are mm-hmm. tons of uh, studies on this. I mean, we, we proved this in 1966. There was evidence that dietary acid load causes bone loss and calcium loss in the urine. It's just that not a lot of people are experts in this field. So I think trying to bring back alkalinity in the diet is very important, um, especially because a lot of the animal foods are so nutrient rich. So the best way to boost a lot of your vitamins and minerals is through eating things like pastured meat, especially liver, heart, um, getting those ground blends for all the nutrients. And then, you know, pl- some plant foods, if you tolerate them are very important to balance out the acid load like spinach, spinach, um, dates, um, even honey is, is alkaline. So there's, there's this, there's this balance that you have to have. Otherwise you will, the body will retain acid at a certain point.
1: And as you say, then you're drawing, right. You've got to take the minerals from somewhere to balance it out. So you draw from the bones, right. Which increases your risk of osteoarthritis and also, um, oh, sorry, osteoporosis and also particularly in women, right. That are postmenopausal. This is then more of an issue.
0: Yeah, it's correct. So, it's Your body actually pulls the minerals because they actually want the organic anions, the, the, the phosphate and the carbonate, because it's the anion, the negatively charged poly, uh, molecule that combines with these minerals that can bind to the positively charged acid or proton. It's called the hydrogen ion. That's how we get rid of acid. You have to, you have to bind it first with something and then it either gets excreted out in the urine as ammonium Um, or you can breathe it out when bicarbonate binds to it, and then it turns into water and CO2. So you're right. Um, But then some people will say, well, why don't I see this right away? It takes a long time. Um, But you can see it quickly. If you take people with um, even just stage two chronic kidney disease or postmenopausal women, and you give them alkaline supplements, there's a lot of randomized studies where they'll give them um, potassium bicarbonate, sodium bicarbonate, or just fruits and vegetables. And you can see it improves their bicarbonate levels. Um, It improves their markers of kidney function, bone health function. Um, The loss of calcium in the urine goes down and the loss of nitrogen, which indicates muscle breakdown also goes down. So you can see those benefits of alkalinity very quickly in someone who is Old or already sick. It would take probably years to see those benefits in a healthy, younger population.
1: Well, you know what I found really interesting having um like a family history of chronic kidney disease and watching my own father is actually, like the the medical the kind of Western medical point of view is no food doesn't really make a difference to what you're doing, right? This is kind of genetic. you might end up with this. And then yet the moment that you receive a diagnosis and you're having things like dialysis, then you are prescribed, Uh, sodium bicarbonate you are told that you can't eat certain foods because now these are potentially harmful for your kidneys which means that it absolutely works the other way these things in opposite are having an effect do you see what i mean it can't just um, apply in disease state which i find sort of slightly frustrating because there's a whole prevention area that could be targeted before um in terms of um Enhancing immunity through other means, then as well. Can you just touch on? You mentioned things like lymphatic flow, for example, um, and, and also thyroid function. Like obviously, cardiovascular-wise, the heart, you know, is the pump. It pumps the blood around the body. The lymphatic system doesn't move well unless it's um, stimulated to a degree. And a lot of people, I would say, you know, are sitting more than ever now that they're not even commuting to work. Is this is having an impact. But you also mentioned that low thyroid function can have an impact on immunity as well. Can you just kind of touch on those two areas?
0: Sure, yeah, so there's this connection between selenium iodine thyroid function um, and immune health. And so essentially um, iodine makes up our thyroid hormones. So so our thyroid hormones are uh, T4 and T3 is the active thyroid hormone. They're made up of molecules of iodine. And selenium is needed for the enzymes to activate your thyroid hormone from T4 to T3. And so thyroid hormones definitely control things like metabolism, whether you're gonna gain weight, whether you're gonna be more insulin resistant and thus not handle the viruses as well. And so it's really important to make sure um, that selenium and iodine status is adequate. And we know that giving selenium supplements, even to people who have adequate levels of selenium, um, so, if you give someone two to 300 micrograms of selenium, that has been shown to increase um, the adaptive immune system, both the health of the adaptive immune system in regards to how um, how well it handles viruses, but also the number as well. And so, there's a there's an interesting um, s- sort of story I like to tell about the importance of um, selenium for fighting viruses. And it's there's a, there's an RNA virus called Coxsackie virus. And typically when you get this um, it doesn't really affect adults. Some children might get hand, foot and mouth, um, but essentially you don't really feel anything from it. But if you're selenium deficient, it causes something called Keyshan disease, which leads to cardiomyopathy and death. And if you just treat those people with selenium, you don't get the cardiomyopathy and death from the virus. So it's, but it's due to this. So this cardiomyopathy and dying from, Coxsackie virus is due to selenium deficiency because selenium is important for glutathione peroxidase and, and, and glutathione levels and your antioxidant system and how well you handle viruses. So it's important that we realize that our, our nutrient status is going to determine how well our body, our own natural immune system will handle viruses.
1: Um, in terms of glutathione, obviously you can take glutathione. Um... Uh, orally, um, or you can take N-acetylcysteine, right, which is a precursor, isn't it, and is also a little bit more sustainable, I guess, on the longer term because taking glutathione can be quite an expense. Um, do you find that N-acetylcysteine supplementation is quite uh, effective in terms of enhancing that pathway?
0: So in regards to what you were saying, if your um, glutathione typically has low bioavailability, um, so that's why if you're, if you're supplementing glutathione, Liposomal glutathione is typically what, what you want to go with. Um, and NAC or N-acetylcysteine, um, like you said correctly, um, is the better way to boost cysteine levels in the body, which is the rate limiting substance to form glutathione. That doesn't mean you're going to form glutathione just because you're taking a piece of the pie doesn't mean you're going to form the pie cysteine can go into other areas. Um, it can form taurine and things like that in other um, areas. It'll be shunted to if the body needs it. But yes, it can boost glutathione levels as well um, by taking N acetylcysteine. Mm-hmm. And there, there was a really good multi center randomized study about 20 years ago in 20 Italian centers. And people, they gave N acetylcysteine to these elderly patients or people who weren't, who weren't elderly, but they had chronic diseases. They gave them 600 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine twice a day, um, just before the cold and flu season. So they gave it to them for six months. And it did significantly reduce the incidence um, and the severity of um, influenza, common cold, things like that. So N-acetylcysteine has has good benefits and good results in in regards to um, taking it before the cold and flu season. Um, The only downside potentially to N-acetylcysteine is some people, have more of an allergic response in regards to um they might get some uh, wheezing in their lungs um, because there's an increase in histamine in the lungs um, when you take n-acetylcysteine and there's a reduction and there can be a reduction in nitric oxide so there's some people who may have to take nitric oxide boosters or antihistamines to tolerate n-acetylcysteine because um it can some in some people cause that type of response
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, And then, in terms of lifestyle things, so for example, like you talk about fasting in the book. um, What about the differences between active people? You know, I recently was interviewing. Dr. Stacey Sims, um, in relation to women's health in particular, and and just looking at very active women who have already low body fat percentages. And uh, I think you make the point as well in the book that if you are very lean already, then, and you're a very active person, then actually it may be better to have three meals a day. And I know that women's hormones are different from men. So, you know, it seems like men, like almost unilaterally do very well on the as a as a minimum. Just wonder what your thoughts are and in, in terms of not over stressing the body not raising cortisol too high and just really supporting hormonal health um, at the same time
0: yeah no so the the goal really is to get lean get muscular and and feed your workouts and you don't need to fast then right and people okay. people who are muscular and lift weights three times a week like myself and that are lean will tell you i don't have to fast in fact Sometimes the more I eat, the more I want to work out and the better physique I have. Mm. Um, so it's, so it's, uh, it's funny how we want to take the easy way out and just fast, right? <laughs> um, but for some people who are starting at a high weight and have a lot more fat, they're going to benefit from fasting more. Whereas a lean person who's doing prolonged fasting, you're just going to be catabolic. You're just going to waste their muscle mass and it's not going to be beneficial. And, you know, intermittent fasting can have benefits, of course, right? Skipping a meal or um, some people do OMAD, one meal a day. um, But that gets a little, you have to really make sure that that one meal is perfect um, in in regards to vitamins, minerals, things like that. uh, So you're not eventually depleting yourself of that. So I, I don't practice one meal a day because I don't even know how I would build uh, that one meal to really hit everything that I needed to hit. But I do think that time-restricted eating um, kind of have benefits, but I don't think it's necessary. I think focus more on exercise and in, in improving your both your cardiovascular health through high-intensity interval training, if you work your way up to that sort of thing, and lifting weights and building bone, building muscle, and, and refeeding well
1: yeah i agree with that and i think um i think it's really important as you say to fuel correctly for exercise otherwise you just don't see the results that you're um, that you're looking for and i think you're getting the autophagy benefits anyway right whereas i think what i'm seeing a lot with people is there's almost like a a competition on instagram of look how many hours i fasted for and then look at my intensity of exercise and then they feel i mean i actually saw someone recently and her <clears throat> hormones it actually brought on when we looked at her blood work perimenopausal symptoms way earlier and then when she stopped doing extended fasting and a purely ketogenic diet her hormones returned back to normal so she was almost being pushed into menopause too early as a result of those restrictions and I think there's probably not enough awareness around that is it I think women have a very delicate hormonal balance that we need to be conscious of.
0: Exactly right and there's nothing wrong with consuming healthy whole food carbs, getting a good insulin spike when you have um, muscle to soak up glucose. And a lot of people feel better, you know, building muscle and, and having more carbohydrates because for a lot of people trying to force your body into gluconeogenesis and force it to make something that you could just ingest um, stresses the body out. And I, I always go back to homeostasis, right? Same thing with salt. If you start Eating less than 3,000 milligrams of sodium, all the stress hormones go up to retain the salt. So aldosterone, angiotensin 2, renin, all these things that stiffen the arteries and are bad for us go up three to tenfold. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when you start restricting carbohydrate intake below 150 grams, below a cort- cortisol goes up, T3 goes down, right, especially in women, you can mess up their thyroid hormones when you drop their carbohydrate intake too much. So and it's balanced, right? Like some people tolerate carbohydrates better than others, but I think um, we've sort of over demonized real whole food carbs.
1: Yeah. On the, on the salt, actually, I want to go into that a little bit more because it's still even said by a lot of doctors, um, you know, here in the UK, you keep your salt low. You know, I have people who, come to me and they say, well, I don't add any salt at all to my food. Now, if they're not eating any processed foods, and obviously processed foods contain table salt, which is undoubtedly not good for your health, they're clearly not getting enough. Um, And I just think there needs more education around this. My understanding is that it's actually about having a full mineral-based salt, something like Redmond Real Salt, um, that's giving you all the minerals at the same time. And actually, that's not going to have adverse implications. If anything, I think you talk about positive impact on cardiovascular health, as you mentioned there, and blood
0: pressure. Right. Yeah, exactly. So so normal salt intake does cause high blood pressure, chronic conditions in blood pressure that's never been shown. And if it does, that person, if they are salt sensitive, where it's causing chronic high blood pressure, that's due to some other underlying cause, which I talk about in the salt fix, whether it's high insulin levels due to a high sugar diet, whether it's low potassium, whether it's low magnesium, whether it's a high acid load, you fix the underlying cause. Our kidneys are meant to handle a lot of salt you know, the, your kidneys filter a full teaspoon of salt every five minutes and have to actively reabsorb all of it back in, which is a tremendous energy expenditure. If you eat more salt, it'll just dump it. And if you don't need it. So we're built, we're basically like these salt filtering systems and our blood is extremely salty. You know, our tip our blood has 16 to 20 grams of sodium in it. Um, whereas your blood only has like four grams of glucose. And yet we're told to consume like only one gram of sodium per day. And so, You know, a normal salt diet, most people do so much better on again, because when you go below that 3000 milligrams, all the stress hormones go up. And that, that to me, that tells me you're, you're messing up with your body's homeostasis. Yeah. You can live on a low salt diet, but why would you want to live on a diet? That's causing your renin, aldosterone, your adrenal glands to constantly be producing all of these stress hormones. And then there's side effects to low salt intakes, right? So when the doctor tells people to go on a low salt diet, Well, everybody is going to have more fatigue, um, sleep disturbances, exercise intolerance. So you're telling someone to exercise, but then you're putting them on a low-salt diet, which is inhibiting their ability to exercise in the first place. It's like counterintuitive. So you got to just find that right balance. And typically, again, don't blame the salt for what the sugar did. Essentially, (laughs) if you're salt sensitive, that is a sign of insulin resistance, usually.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And what about um, exercise-wise? You've, t- you've mentioned strength training, you've mentioned high-intensity work. What have you found in terms of the immune system? Because I find that actually we rarely overexercise unless we're an athlete. There's potential there. You might overtrain. Most times we're under-recovering rather than over exercising. What have you found in terms of keeping the immune system in check um, long-term, uh, you know, as much as anything else rather than in response to viral infections um, to be kind of that best balance for longevity um, in terms of like the split between, you know, cause I find that overall walking is just phenomenal for health, but then you also need some high intensity work. you need some strength training. Like what's your own protocol, for example, on a weekly basis?
0: So my protocol is um, lifting weights usually three times a week. And then um usually running like a mile fairly fast, uh, once to twice a week um, is typically yeah. what I do. So I don't do a ton of cardio, but I but I do enough. Um, it's almost like high intensity um cardio for like a mile. So so essentially I'll run like a mile and like sub six minute, and I'll do that one or once or twice a week. And then I'll lift weights three times a week. And the studies show moderate exercise, you know, at you know, let's say three to five days a week um, for 30 to 45 minutes reduces the risk of upper respiratory tract infections by about 50%. When you overdo it and you're, and you're exercising over an hour a day at a high intensity um, for like three or four days a week, that can increase your risk of an upper respiratory tract infection by two to six fold. So we, we do go through some strategies that may help offset that increase, but you can overdo it with exercise Um, So that that perfect amount seems to be, you know, 30 to 60 minutes, fairly high intensity, but not super, super high intensity. But that's not to say you can't train hard for over an hour. Um, You just may get sicker often more often
1: yeah sure because as you say it affects the upper respiratory tract and what about um or vulnerability to infections in terms of when you say lifting weights do you mean like heavy load for a small number of repetitions or more within that sort of hypertrophy eight to ten range what do you have a focus there that you think is better for immunity and longevity
0: i do the eight to ten range um and i make sure that uh the the my form is very good And I'm, and I'm, you know, really keeping the weight on my tendons and ligaments for a fairly decent amount of time. That way um, it's not too heavy because I did injure myself um, when I was 26 years old, I partially tore my pectoralis tendon because I was lifting too heavy and I was doing things in that three to five, only, only able to do three or five reps. And that will get you into trouble once you get older. Lifting weights where you can only do three lifts. That's what happened on the on the third or fourth lift. My pectoralis tendon tore, and probably because I was 26 and I didn't eat a good diet my whole life too, so I probably didn't have good collagen health and things like that. But you do have to be careful with lifting weights. You have to really you want to be in that eight to ten range because that's a safer range too for mm-hmm. preventing injuries.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think you have to be extremely well warmed up. Don't need to lift the very heavy weights. That's more. um, And as you say, um, other factors come into play. You mentioned there collagen. I just want to touch on that actually, because it's really, really important and the importance of things like bone breath and glycine and gut health um, just to kind of round things off. Can we talk just a little bit briefly about the gut um, and how that enhances immune
0: health? Sure. So, so collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body makes up like 70, 75% of your protein in your skin, um, about 90% of the protein in bone. Um, It forms all your tendons, ligaments, organs, and the lining of the intestine is made up of collagen. And then of course, there's these glycosaminoglycans, um, that are made of sulfates, which give it negative charge. And that holds water and gives your, you know, your joints, you know, more, um, moist, more water, more lubricant, things like that. So there's more to more to collagen health and joint health than just collagen, right? It's made up of all these mucopolysaccharides and chondroitins and all the, all these other fun things. But in regards to gut health, that, that That is the gateway to, to if someone's either healthy or not healthy, because essentially a lot of chronic disease is coming from what you're eating. It's it's bad. It's damaging the gut lining. Um, and now you have things that should not be passing through to the bloodstream and, and hitting the immune system that are. Um, and that will create this sort of autoimmune type of reaction. So essentially, you need to have a healthy gut lining, healthy tight junctions to prevent um, sub, undigested substances from passing through that shouldn't, and th- things like LPS, lipopolysaccharide, which is endotoxin, right? Your your gram negative bacteria are producing this that should not be able to pass through that lining, and, but when it does, it creates endotoxemia, which a lot of people have, but people just aren't measuring LPS in the blood, and that can cause a whole host of damage, inflammation to the immune system. And things like that. So keep a healthy tight junction, eat healthy foods you're not damaging the barrier that's protecting you um, and your inside world from the outside world.
1: And this can also be linked, hasn't it, to things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in terms of these toxins that are produced within the body actually causing that, um, which is massively on the increase at the moment, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, there are these, there's immune cells that react right in the liver to. LPS when you have this endotoxin and that that's what can cause um, fibrosis and damage to the liver. You have these um, these Kupfer cells, they're called, and they glycine actually helps calm those cells down. And we actually published a paper on that. Myself and one of my colleagues. So, yeah, you have this immune system right, right, at the liver, at the site of liver, because the liver is filtering everything and and it's making sure that nothing's coming in that shouldn't into the body. And when you start seeing, when the liver starts seeing endotoxin, your immune system freaks out and produces all these inflammatory cytokines. And that causes a ton of inflammation to the liver. And so glycine helps to sort of suppress, um, you know, there's glycine receptors on Kupfer cells that sort of reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines. There's actually other uh, inflammatory immune cells that have glycine receptors as well that will become calmed down if you can boost the blood levels of glycine in
1: your body. Sure, okay. Um, And in terms of protein and and, and longevity, obviously sometimes this is a bit like controversial. Some people worry about consuming too much protein and it, um, you know, being too much in sort of growth mode. Whereas if you're looking at body composition, then we know that like one gram of protein per pound of body weight is really good, but balancing it out and making sure you're not just having muscle meats and methionine um, is important is what I would say to people and and getting collagenous cuts and having glycine and bone broth and things like that. that is just really curious on your view in terms of protein, because our our requirements go up, don't they, as we age?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. And protein is so important. So the the goal with um, these things isn't to lower protein. It's to, it's to consume whole foods that give you, like you said, if you're working out one gram of protein per pound of body weight is probably optimal for building muscle, building bone. And like you said, balancing out the methionine to glycine ratio, consuming collagenous meats, consuming glycine, consuming hydrolyzed collagen is great. But you have to just you just have to provide more alkalinity. So the the problem isn't the protein, really, because you need mortality dramatically increases if you're not getting enough protein like Mm protein. And we see mortality increasing too on the other spectrum. But the problem is, is because people who are consuming high protein diets, usually are consuming processed meats and they're not bringing back the alkaline foods or waters to balance out the acid. Mm. So that's all you have to do. You, um, that's what I do. I consume probably, um, I probably consume a pound and a half of pastured meats per day, including liver and heart and things like that too in there, not just muscle meat um, to get more nourishment as well. But I drink, you know, some bicarbonate waters. I consume potassium citrate to offset the acid load. So that's the key. The key is to balance out that acid load from the animal proteins. Um, because a lot of people say, well, why is, why is animal protein acidic? Um, it's because it's high in, um, sulfur containing amino acids, which turn into sulfuric acid in the body. So, methionine and cysteine contain the sulfur, and then you have to, you can't breathe it out. You can't breathe out sulfuric acid. So, you just got to balance that acid load.
1: Okay, that's interesting. But then also, we're encouraged to eat a lot of sulfur containing foods in the form of some, like, you know, broccoli, um, allium family right. vegetables and things. Is oh, that fruit then, fruit. is that yeah. not increasing all of this?
0: It, well, it, it, it sort of is, right? Because so not all sulfur will be directed to sulfuric acid, right? Because we have sulfates on the proteoglycans that I was telling you about that are negatively charged that pull water into it. So sulfur is extremely important. And there's a lot of studies. Like I, I started taking something called MSM, um, which is sort of like this precursor to sulfur because there's a lot of studies on joint health, allergies, things like that. And like you said, the sulfur containing foods, um, like onions, broccoli, things like that are really healthy and good for us too. So it's sort of like the... This is sort of like the um, the protein story, right? Protein has a lot of good things. You just got to find out something to balance out the acid, right? And so the, the sulfur-containing foods are great for you. And there's a lot of studies showing even high sulfate water. Sulfurous waters are good for you too. It's just they do provide... Um, some acidity, but it's you're not going to get really acidity from broccoli and mm. um natural vegetable sulfurous foods because they provide alkalinity. So that's really not a f- uh a form of acidity. Really, you can you can get acidity from sulfur-containing animal foods, sulfur supplements like MSM will probably contribute somewhat to the acid load, which is which is why I take potassium citrate um to sort of offset that. So I want to I want to get the benefits of all the sulfur. I just want to prevent the acid load.
1: And what kind of dosage are you taking that in?
0: Of potassium citrate. Hmm. I do I do three grams two to three times per day. Okay. Okay. So That's three grams of potassium citrate will give you one gram of about one gram of potassium. So I'm getting an extra three grams of potassium too in my diet, which is great because most people aren't getting enough.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so kind of just to sort of finish off then, cardiovascular health, because obviously you're a cardiovascular research scientist. Uh, and this is still re- controversial, isn't it? A lot of the theories around saturated fat and heart disease have been debunked. But then in some people, we see that certain kind of genetic SNPs make them more vulnerable. I know, for example, like when I, I have the APOE4 one copy, so that, um, if you look at the research, suggests, you know, higher things of omega-3s and actually keeping saturated fats to about 20%. Now, I know not everybody is vulnerable in these ways. But for, for just to summarize for people, if you can, what's important in terms of actually optimizing cardiovascular health? It sounds like from a lot of what you're saying, metabolic health is the key to this window um, and, and not having things like insulin resistance. But I'd love to just get some more color on that from
0: you. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think everyone wants to look at things on the margin. But the, the main things are the number one contributor is the omega-6 seed oils. You cut those out of your diet, you're going to drop inflammation in the arteries. You're going to reduce the omega-6 in your lipoproteins that causes them, like LDL, to oxidize in the first place, right? So you want to, you want to think about saturating LDL with things like extra virgin olive oil, the mono unsaturated fats when you consume more um olive oil that will saturate your lipoprotein particles with more monounsaturated fats, making them more resistant to oxidative stress. And at the same time, you're getting all these polyphenols from extra virgin olive oil too that prevents oxidative stress. So when it comes to good fats, bad fats, extra virgin olive oil is your good fat. Pastured butter is fine, um, but you don't want your regular butter. Regular butter can have oxidized cholesterol and vitamin K2, So avoid regular butter, consume pasture butter is fine. And those are the oils you want to cook with too. So animal fats are less susceptible to oxidation because they have no double bonds to oxidize during cooking. And then the the extra virgin olive oil is so high in polyphenols, it also prevents that oil from oxidizing. So we're always told to not cook with olive oil because it has a high smoke point, right? But vegetable oils are because it has a low smoke point. Mm -hmm. Vegetable oils have a very high smoke point but they oxidize very quickly. So you can never go with a smoke point on should I cook with this or not? Otherwise you're gonna be going with all the highly oxidizable omega-6 seed oils. Mm. You wanna go with, does the oil actually oxidize? And when it comes to that coconut oil, animal fats and extra virgin olive oil are your best. And then obviously dropping refined carbs and sugar is your second best thing you can do in regards to improving your health. And then, you know. Getting those um, organ meats, um, getting, getting the copper that a lot of people aren't getting through liver um, and folate, vitamin A, vitamin D, those are like the nutrients that so many people are lacking and they'll get them if they just pull some heart and pull some liver into their diet. Like an ounce of liver a day um, keeps the doctor away.
1: So what would you say for people who just don't like eating? <laughs> I was raised by my mother on things like heart curry and liver. And I think she just put me off. I noticed now there's a few, I forget the name from dinner. You can take it in capsule form, right? Do you think that's as yeah, good?
0: I don't, I don't think I, I don't not.
1: think,
0: no, no. They don't ever really list the nutrient levels. Usually mm. if they do list them, they're much lower than real food. You want to be consuming liver and heart and you don't want to be taking these capsule, these, you know, frozen capsules. So I don't like the taste of liver. I hate it. But I buy the blends. So you can buy blends um okay. uh that's like 75% muscle meat and then it's like 25% um liver, a mix of liver and heart. And then you just cook it like like taco meat and you put your seasonings in it. You don't even okay so well, I that's mean, a or, good idea.
1: So I can yeah, actually right. just get my butcher and p- for people listening, get your butcher to kind of mix up something for you and even make, you know, like a taco or like a bolognese style meat with tomatoes. It all mixed up together.
0: Right. Right? Yeah. Or just or just um, take the ground meat, the blend and just make burgers out of it. You won't even yeah, really. True. So, yeah, you always want to go, you know, always want to get it through food. You know, these supplements, wow. um, you're, you're not getting, you're not getting nearly half the benefit if you're trying to, from an animal food versus like a freeze dried, you know, capsule. I mean, I've tried taking too. I tried taking, cause I hated the taste of liver so much until I, once I found the blends, I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of this sooner? Yeah. But I started taking those capsules and I instantly got a migraine. Like the real, and if you look at reviews on like those, you know, those liver and heart capsules. Like having a massive headache is one of the most common symptoms. I don't know why people get it when they take liver capsules, but I, I got mm-hmm. mad, the worst headache I've ever had in my whole life. So I'm just like, it's just not, it's just not natural.
1: No, that doesn't. Okay. <laughs> you convinced me, but I just think that's such an amazing idea. Why not mix it? Right. That's just well, I, inspired. I, I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. start that. And that way I can sneak it into my kids as well. And they won't even know the difference.
0: That's what I do too. Mm. I, I even have to to my wife sometimes too, without her knowing. <laughs> she doesn't Give her know. Some extra.
1: <laughs> then when she looks in the mirror and she's just got this really young-looking skin and her house amazing, she's glowing and you're just like, oh, ah, that'll be why. Um, oh, amazing! It's been so great to have you on. I uh, I guess to just to close, what are the top three things that you would recommend people do? to optimize their health long-term? Like if you, I it could be five, but just the main things, I think we definitely talked about seed oils. That's number one, right? But what, what else right. would you say that are like the goal to get these right? And then the rest, you can just a nice to layer on top.
0: Yeah, top five things, cut out refined seed oils, cut out refined carbohydrates and sugars, eat um, liver and heart in blends, um, get sunlight in the morning, you don't have to sunbathe, just get outside and get light into your retina and avoid artificial light at night. Um, because that messes up your sleep and your circadian rhythm. So if people can get those five down, I think those that that's probably the, you know, the most important, obviously, um, exercise, especially lifting weights, is super important, too, and should be in, in the top 10 for sure things people should do
1: yeah for sure amazing well i will link to everything we talked about in the show notes and i definitely recommend people go and buy the immunity fix it's an extraordinary book and the salt fix amazing books in fact i've got another one here that you wrote with dr Macola, i believe um you are like definitely prolific in content and your instagram's amazing i know you're on there a lot but please link where can people find you find out more about your work
0: Sure. Um, my Instagram and Twitter account is at Dr. James Dinick, And my website is Dr. James Dinik,
1: Perfect. I will link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Angela. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find the show notes and everything that we talked about in today's episode over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. Um... And I would love it if you are enjoying this episode or any of the episodes, if you could pay it forward by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or whichever platform provider you're listening on. It really helps to just get the podcast more reach um, and just helps me to continue to bring this content to you. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode um, and I look forward to connecting with you on the podcast next week.